Psychology in Seattle. Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. This is chapter two in my spring cleaning episodes in which I am cleaning out all the backlog of emails that all of you have been sending me, particularly you patrons who have been sending me questions. I am a list maker and I'm also a check boxer, a boxer of of checks of boxes. I like to scratch things off my list and having this list hang over my head actually gives me a slight bit of discomfort. And so uh, I'm going to try to answer all those questions. In this episode, I'm going to talk about body dysmorphic disorder, body dysmorphia. A lot of you have been asking me to talk about that. I'm going to talk about internal family systems. I'm going to talk about parenting and anxiety and PTSD and panic. And we'll, we'll see how far we get into this. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. I'm really sorry to you non-patrons out there, but this episode is just for patrons of the podcast. These are patron questions, and so I thought I would make this a patron-only episode. Um, If you want to hear this episode and you're not a patron of the podcast, you have to go to patreon.com and become a patron of this podcast, and then you'll get access to this episode and many, many other excellent episodes, if I might say so myself. So do that now. Go to patreon.com and become a patron. All right. Welcome to the Patron Zone patrons. Thank you so much for becoming a patron. It really is the wind beneath my wings, as Bette Midler would say. I wake up. Um, so I, I do my regular job during the beginning of the week, my various different regular jobs, being a therapist, supervisor, and educator. And then uh, later in the week, around Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I can sort of relax and I wake up in the morning and I'm like, all right, what podcast project am I going to do today? And today I woke up and said, I'm going to do this. So welcome to my world. <laughs> All right, body dysmorphia. Uh, Someone wrote in from Hungary. Uh, He says, Hi, Kirk from Hungary. I've been listening to your podcast for over a year, and let me tell you, I am loving it. Your voice fits your character. It's very calming and sweet, like a teddy bear. (laughs) Like a teddy bear. Um, I was wondering if you could do an episode about body dysmorphic disorder. It has been so unbearable at times that I couldn't even go outside. I especially love winter because I can hide my face with a scarf and a hat. I have this notion that something is wrong with my face. It keeps me up at night. But the thing is, I've actually seen my face for real, and it didn't look that bad. It actually looked really good, like a handsome boy. Um, Yeah, body dysmorphia is awful, and body dysmorphic disorder is awful. It's very debilitating. It's no joke. Um, you know, we tend to use the phrase to refer sometimes to the somewhat within normal limits process that a lot of people have, which is people will gain five pounds and they will think about it a lot and they'll, they'll, uh, but it won't make their life horrible. It'll just bring down their self esteem a little bit. It'll be a little bit on their mind. They'll shame themselves a little bit. They'll 
um, harm their bodies a little bit through some weird diet. But that's just being an American, as far as I can tell. The people who suffer from the DSM-level diagnosis of body dysmorphic disorder, it's no joke. It is awful. I mean, it's this it's the same level of awfulness as major depressive disorder or PTSD or OCD or anorexia. You know, like I said, most of us in, in most of us have a slight version of this at least. Um mostly due to our culture, by the way. Uh, but also a lot of us have, I think, the underpinnings of body dysmorphia due to the shaming that we all inevitably go through growing up. It's just a matter of growing up to be shamed. And we often will apply that to our bodies, especially today. I I grew up in the 70s when the uh, Photoshop didn't exist, right? So Certainly there were people with issues of body, but today, I mean, it is the, the level, you know, if Kim Kardashian, all those other people, they, the things that they do to their bodies and the things they do to their pictures and, uh, it's, it's intense. And if you, even for people, so let, let me say this, actually, my wife was a professional model and still is, but um, she was a, in the past, that's all she did. I mean, now she does other things, but from the age of like, I don't know, 16 until 40, that was all she did. She didn't, she didn't really do any other job. She was, she was a model. She, you know, did bikinis and underwear and dresses and and she's she's on the cover of magazines like Slim or Shape or you know Good Housekeeping all all those magazines that you know I've never bought but she's you know been on the cover of of books she's like Harlequin novel model you know like the the heaving breast and the muscular man holding her you know she was she was one of those people um, she was in commercials and and uh. So in her world, like, you know, she's one of those people. She's one of those people that is, has one of those, um, she's genetically blessed. Let's just put it that way. And, uh, I've, I've come and I've met a lot of her friends who are also models and I've come to realize that, uh, they have the same voices in their head as everyone else. If anyone shouldn't have those voices, it should be people who literally get paid because they're good looking. (laughs) Right. But my God, they have the same voices, exactly the same, you know, um, they might have a little bit more confidence about their bodies, but, um, but the same voices like, Oh, I'm so fat. These jeans make me look fat. Does this shirt make me look fat? (laughs) You know, Oh, my skin. I can't believe I have this freckle or this zit or this mole or my hair is blah, blah, blah. And it, it's, it's very eye opening because, you know, I used to see models as like, well, they must realize that they're beautiful and that there's no comparison to the rest of the planet because they're in the top zero, zero, one percent of good looking people on the planet. They get paid to do this sort of thing. And they're just like anyone else. They just go to work. So I say that because we all have been shamed about our bodies. It doesn't matter how we look. 
It, you could be paid for how good looking you are and still have shame about the way you look. It's just a part of life. Conversely, you could literally be the ugliest person on the planet and have no shame about the way that you look. So it just, you know, people often will say like, well, because I'm fat and ugly, that's why I feel like shit. Well, I'm here to tell you, it's not because you're quote unquote fat or ugly, which you may or may not be. It doesn't, it, that you, you feel this way because the way you were raised, it, it, it produced a certain feeling inside of you. And so you attached it to this cultural thing that, that allows you to have that feeling. I work with a lot of people on this. We will break down these notions of I should be ashamed because I'm not earning enough money or I should be ashamed because I don't have kids yet or I should be ashamed. You know, I feel all this shame and we'll break that down and we'll eventually completely dismantle it. And they'll be like, but I still feel the shame. And I'll be like, yeah, it, the feeling is the foundation. The manifestation is what's on top of that. Baseline, you're ashamed. And your brain says, well, what do I attach that shame to? What, what makes the most sense, culturally speaking? What have I learned? Well, I've learned that you're supposed to shame yourself about your body and the way that you look or how much money you make or your house. That's what I'm supposed to shame myself over. So that's what I'll think about. That's my conscious thought process. I need a better house. I need a better body. I'm too fat. I'm too ugly. I'm too old whatever it is. And, but that has nothing to do with it. It's just the, it's just your conscious mind going somewhere. Um, I've come to hypothesize that this is true about a lot of things, e eating disorders uh, included. Baseline, you feel worthless and culture tells you you're not supposed to be fat. So you attach that worthlessness to you, the fact that you are eating. And so your body, your mind says, okay, well, uh, I'm worthless because I'm fat. But you strip all that away and the worthlessness is still there because of the way that we're treated to varying degrees of abuse and mistreatment growing up. Anyway, so we all have some body dysmorphia because of society and also because of just background shame that we all have. But some people have it much worse, right? And some people have it really bad. Like the person who wrote in, is saying that um, he can't, you know, he loves winter because he can hide his face with a scarf and a hat. You know, that's really taking it to another level, right? It's one thing to just walk out the door, look at yourself in the mirror and go like, ugh, I look like shit today. But, you know, you just go on with your day. That's like normal, within normal limits, horrible shame. I mean, it's still horrible, but it doesn't change your life to any huge degree. Um. I mean, having said that, I, there's so many people who are afraid to be naked in front of their spouse. I, I, I know a lot of people who they, they don't even want to really be fully naked just standing there in front of their spouse. And I, I just find that to be just so, it's such a tragedy. It's a crime that as a society in 2019, we still are producing human beings who can't just be who they are and worry that their spouse is grossed out by them. Uh, and uh, I just find that to be really just makes me really sad to think about everyone walking around just going like, I'm a piece of shit. Look how fat I am. Uh, 
it's really, it's really horrible. Anyway, so we're all suffering to some degree from this, but at higher levels, it's, it gets bad. So let's get into it. Okay. So what's the prevalence of those who qualify, you know, who go beyond the threshold in the body dysmorphic disorder? Well, research finds that 2% of adults, uh, basically around the world, uh, they haven't done a ton of research around the world, but it seems to be across lots of different cultures. It's not just the United States. So 2%. So that's not a lot of people, right? That's like similar rates of like schizophrenia or something. So it's pretty rare that someone will have the full-blown, beyond-the-threshold body dysmorphic disorder. So that should give you one idea of like how extreme it has to be in order for people to qualify for the diagnosis in the DSM. And what do you think the difference is between men and women? Do you think there's higher rates for men, higher rates for women? Well, I would have guessed there was higher rates for women, right? That's the narrative we have in our society. And certainly there's a lot more messaging to women around the way their body looks and how they're supposed to shame themselves. So that wouldn't be a terrible guess. But actually, the rate between men and women, it's about the same. There's a slight higher prevalence for women, but not much. So about 2% of men and about 2% of women in our societies suffer from the full-blown body dysmorphic disorder. So the, the takeaway from this is lots of men suffer from body dysmorphic disorder. And it's kept quiet for a number of reasons. One is we, don't, we culturally don't think that they would. Um, and two, because they don't come forward because they're doubly ashamed. It's sort of like how something like, you know, a third of rape victims or a, a third of sexual assault victims are men, something like that. I can't remember the exact stat, but a lot of the victims of sexual assault identify as men. And, but why, when you think of like someone got raped, why do you think of a woman? Well, because how many stories of men being, a sexu- being sexually assaulted have you heard? Like not many. How many... How many stories of sexual assault on men have been depicted in movies that it, that it wasn't a comedy, it wasn't played up for laughs? How many, how many times have you seen that? Not often, or maybe ever. So we just, culturally, we just ignore it and, it, and then we don't think it's possible. And then two, the victims don't come forward because they think they're so weird. I mean, it's hard for victims to come forward anyway. It's hard for people with body dysmorphic disorder to come forward anyway. It's probably particularly hard for men. All right, let's get into the DSM criteria here. So number one is preoccupied with perceived flaws in physical appearance. This one's pretty obvious, right? It's like you perceive that there's something wrong with the way you look, and you're very preoccupied with it. This is the key. It's an obsession. You, it's invasive. Your thought, you, you know, for most of us, when we think about ourselves and our body, we're like, oh, I don't, want, I don't like the way I look. And so, you know, if you count up those thoughts, it'd be like, you know, 10, 15 times a day or f- three times a day or whatever. It's probably, probably not, you know, uh, it's probably not rare for someone to have that, you know, five times a day. But for people with body dysmorphic disorder, it's constant. It is, it's all day long, frequent, and the thoughts are very intense. You know, I think a a typical person will be like, they'll think about it when they're putting their jeans on the morning. They're like, oh, these jeans are a little tight. 
these used to be my fat jeans or whatever. Or they're about to get into the shower and they look at them, they sort of get a glance at themselves in the mirror and they're like, ugh. But, you know, their mind goes to something else and then they're having laughs and they're having a good time and they're finding meaning in their life. It, it, it interferes somewhat and it's still a tragedy, but it doesn't ruin their day. For people with body dysmorphic disorder, it ruins their entire life. So they're preoccupied with these perceived flaws in physical appearance and they're, the thoughts are invasive. It's almost like an obsession. And they think that everyone else sees these flaws. This is kind of a key. They're, they're fairly convinced that everyone else notices whatever flaw they have. And these flaws can be obviously looking thinner, which is the quintessential um, stereotypical version of this. But there's many other kinds. Like a lot of men want to have more muscles. There's a lot of men who walk around with body dysmorphic disorder thinking that they're too thin, that they don't have enough muscles. Now, if this isn't a if this if this isn't evidence that we're not cultural creatures, I don't know what is. I get into debates about this with people. They're like, well, it's biology. No, it's it's culture. Well, it we're not as boys, we're not born wanting to be muscly <laughs> in the mirror, by the way. It's not like uh, muscly in terms of like utility. It's it's how you look, you know. Do you have big guns or not? And those ideals have changed over time for men and women. So it's pretty clear that culture plays a massive role in our mental health. So anyway, people can want to be thinner. They can want more muscles. They could hate their skin. Some people hate their skin. For example, one study found that among dermatology patients, you know, among the people who go to a dermatologist's office, about 12% of these patients qualify for body dysmorphic disorder. So just think about that. If you're a dermatologist, about one in eight of your patients are currently suffering from body dysmorphic disorder. And the only reason why they are in, why they are even in your office is because they, they have a disorder. And I wonder how many dermatologists are actually talking with their patients about body dysmorphic disorder. I just wonder about that. I'm sure some do, but I'm guessing many don't. You could also hate how short you are or how tall you are or that you have too much body hair or you could feel really ugly like the person who wrote in from Hungary. You could hate the way your hair looks or the size of your breasts or the size of your penis or the size of your nose or the way that your teeth look. That's another big one. For example, they did a study among oral surgery patients and found that 10% of them suffered from body dysmorphic disorder. 10%. So 1 in 10 oral surgery patients suffer for the for the you know full blown they qualify for the full blown body dysmorphic disorder uh, diagnosis. So they're very preoccupied about some kind of flaw and it, and the flaw can really be anything about the body. As you can see, it's not just being thin by any means. They also exhibit repetitive coping behaviors like excessive mirror checking. They're always like checking the mirror, making sure everything's just right. Or excessive grooming. They spend a lot of time putting on their makeup, like three hours, and they'll start over, you know. Or they'll pick at their skin. 
that's another body dysmorphic disorder sign is when people are kind of, there's an imperfection on their skin, like a pimple or something, and they, they keep picking at it. Or they seek reassurance a lot. How do, how do I look? Do I have a booger in my nose? How does my hair look? Am I pretty? What's happening? Do I look fat? You know, lots of need for reassurance from other people. Also, another sign of coping or result of this preoccupation is comparing the self to others. Like walking around in public and saying, that person's fatter than me, that person's thinner, that person's about the same, that person's fatter than me, that person's thinner. And getting some sort of satisfaction when you see people who are doing worse than you because you feel so bad about yourself. And all of this stuff needs to cause what they call clinically significant distress. People might be in such distress that they'll just avoid going into public. They'll avoid parties. They'll avoid relationships. They'll avoid being naked. For example, one study found that uh, for teenagers who suffer from body dysmorphic disorder, 20% of them will drop out of school primarily because they want to avoid being around other people for fear of being judged for how they look. They're per- you know, they perceive there's something so wrong with the way they look that they drop out of school. 20%, 20% of them. It causes stress on the body from obviously stress, but also from um, unnecessary surgeries, unnecessary treatments, and too much exercise. So sometimes people will exercise way too much. People can become depressed. They can become suicidal. They can become isolated, anxious. There's just a lot of bad things that can happen. Also, in order for one to qualify for the body dysmorphic disorder in the DSM, it needs to not be part of some other larger eating disorder like anorexia. And lastly, in the DSM, they talk about a spectrum from good insight to no insight. So some people will have insight into their body dysmorphic disorder. In fact, the listener from Hungary had insight. He's like, it's excessive. They're, you know, I, I, I can't go outside and I'm, I'm not going to do that. But I also know that there's something wrong with the way that I see the world and the wrong with the way I see myself, but I can't help it. So that's good insight. That's someone who knows that they have excessive preoccupation and, and that their evaluation of their flaws are is not rational and not shared by most people. So that's good insight. On the other end of the spectrum, you have people who have no insight. They they're like, no, I am a I am empirically an ugly person. My teeth are so bad I shouldn't even be outside. I don't want no one wants to look at how ugly my teeth are. That kind of thing. And it can either be in a uh, non-pathological sense, or it can even seem almost delusional. Like where they look at themselves in the mirror, and this is more indicative of anorexia, and they will be thinner, they'll be the thinnest person on the planet, and they'll look at themselves in the mirror and they'll say, I'm fat, I'm, I'm huge. And so it, it can look like delusion. And that's one of the reasons why um, eating disorders and body smorphic disorder, it's really hard to treat. A lot of people think, well, with ana- you know, if you don't know what the deal is, with anorexia or body dysmorphic disorder, you're just like, well, just tell the person that they're good enough and that they actually are pretty and that everyone has flaws with their body and, you know, just let it go. 
because they're still thinking it, it's in the normal range of body dysmorphic issues. But for some people, it's it's extreme, and it is not it's not malleable. The thoughts are not changeable. You can't just because the person doesn't even believe you. You're just you're like there's nothing wrong with you, and they're just like oh yeah whatever. All right. So what about treatment? So there are medications that sometimes they'll prescribe, like SSRIs, for example. But really, that that will just take the edge off, in my experience. What really needs to happen is a, 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 a number of different types of therapy need to occur. Now, this can be with different therapists. It can be with the same therapist. The first thing is CBT, DBT, mindfulness, ACT, all that kind of stuff. Basically, you need to check your thoughts. You need to say, okay... Um, is it rational or not that I think that I'm so ugly I can't go outside? Is that rational or not? Now, it might not change the what you do. You might still have all those feelings, but at the very least, you need some kind of editor in your mind or in conversation with a therapist as to whether or not it's reasonable that you're saying and thinking these things. Because if if you have no pushback in your mind, then these notions will just wreak havoc. So you have to have some way of checking your thoughts. Like, wait a second, I, I feel like this is true, but is it really true? That's, that's what that effort is. And then exposure. In behavioral therapy, you need to expose yourself. You, uh, you need to begin to tolerate things. Like you are afraid of the mall because of the way you look. Well, you go to a small mall at first, or you think about going to the mall. You know, you have to start, because some people will become essentially agoraphobic and not leave the house because they're just like, I don't want to subject anyone to me. Because they're, they have this idea in their mind that something really horrible is going to happen. So, so the other exposure that I'll do with people is like, well, okay, let's say you do have a flaw. Let's say that your teeth are fucked up. Okay, now what? <laughs> like, um, let's, let's have you walk up to, you know, a friend of yours and say like, okay, honestly, my teeth are kind of fucked up, right? Um, the person's like, well, they're not fucked up, but yeah, I mean, they're a little crooked at times, but you know, whatever. Okay. Then you just sit there with that. You just sit there with that notion that your friend has acknowledged that your teeth are not perfect. And you both sit there for a while and realize, oh, the world did not end. My friend still loves me. The world hasn't changed. And yet my friend has acknowledged that my teeth are a little crooked. So, so just exposing yourself to, you know, cause sometimes the solution that a lot of people will turn to with body dysmorphia is to try to build up someone's self-esteem by propping up this notion that they're beautiful. And there's nothing wrong with that. Of course, if that works and what is beauty, blah, blah, blah. But on the other hand, it's like, well, in another, looking at it another way, like like I said earlier, there are people who get paid because of how good looking that they are. I am not that good looking, so I must be less good looking than my wife, for example. I I I, I can't, there must be some kind of scale, right? Or if all the models in the world were abducted by aliens, there would be a next tier of people who would be hired as models, right? Not everyone would become a model. So there's clearly some kind of scale, right? Like I'm a six or something. And it's awful to think about, I know, but I don't know anyone who doesn't at least have some 
knowledge of, of that scale that we have. And that's fine. That it's like, okay, someone's taller than someone else, whatever. So part of the treatment is to just say, okay, you're a five. I'm not going to lie to you and say that you're not a five to, to many people. Now what? You know, let's, let's just accept the fact that you're a five according to societal standards of what good looking is. And let's just accept that. Let's be cool with that. There's, there's nothing wrong with you. You just happen to be a five. Big fucking deal. You know, five's average. The world needs a lot of fives. It doesn't make you any less of a worthy person. It doesn't make you beautiful, so to speak. It, doesn't, it certainly doesn't make you beautiful on the inside. So sometimes you, you just got to get like down and dirty in that way with people. Um, so a lot, so check your thoughts and then exposure and just really kind of going over those things in terms of the way your brain and body work in the, in the now. Uh, the second thing is working on systems, meaning that you have to talk with the client about their parents and their spouse and their friends and their family members and the people around them. And you might even bring them into therapy. That's what I've done. A lot of times with eating disorders, you got to work with the family because the problem the disorder is affixed and emerges out of that system so you got to treat that it's pretty complicated work but that's something else you do and then the third thing is is attachment and psychodynamic work so you attack the the thoughts you attack the the, the you know you try to habituate people to just dealing with the fact that they're not the most beautiful person on the planet you work on the systems, but then you got to work on like where this all came from, which often has to do with attachment and psychodynamic theory, which is you got to have insight into the psyche. You got to help them to understand like how their brain works, how their personality works. You also got to have corrective emotional experiences when we're growing up and we're shamed. So people with body dysmorphic disorder in all likelihood were quite shamed growing up for something. It might not have been for body. It could have just been for, for anything, but they were really quite shamed. And so the person has this working model of self and others that involves like a constant level of self-shame. They believe that others are constantly shaming them and they just have that working model, even though they emerge out of the abuse growing up and go into a world where that's not really true anymore, but that's what they've internalized. So you need a corrective experience in order to counter that. You need to have corrective experiences that involve non-shaming, with actual human beings, which often can be a therapist. So, and it's not just around body shame. You know, people with body dysmorphic disorder often just have, like I said, just general shame, and it just manifests as body shame. Basically, you're reparenting people by helping them to feel secure and loved, regardless of how they look, or even because of how great they look or something. I don't know. Um, so all this depends on getting secure attachment um, getting people to love them, being with people who love them, that kind of thing. And the last thing I could think of here that I would have done with people like this is work on existential work. You know, what's the meaning of life? You're here right now, and you're really preoccupied with the way you look. It, when you die, is that how you want to live your life? You know, so you've already worked on the thoughts and the exposure and the systems and you know, you're doing your corrective experiences, but you're also talking with them like, what are you doing? One of the things that I find a lot of people 
suffer from when they're in my office is they're reacting to life. They're not proactive on life. They're, they're trying to please other people. They're trying to not be rejected by other people. They're trying to survive day to day. And certainly there are a lot of reasons for that. If you have a lot of things happening in your life that are quite infringing on your, you know, mental state. But for the most part, when I'm working with people, eventually they get to a place where I'm like, okay, you know, we've managed to put out the fires. Now, how how are you going to lean into life? What are you going to, what are you here for? What are you going to do? And so some people with body dysmorphic disorder, they'll be in this, this because they don't really have a they don't really have a purpose for why they're on the planet and so they're they're just kind of blah and then this body dysmorphic disorder kind of takes root and can flourish whereas if you took someone and you you know did some repair work with someone with body dysmorphic disorder and you're like okay why are you here and that could take a while for someone to figure out particularly if you've been mistreated you might not know it might take you 5 10 20 years to figure out why you're here on this planet but it's a worthy question to answer it's the question to answer and someone might say okay well i'm here because i want to help nature that's my goal i want to help animals i want to help trees that's my goal that's what i'm going to connect with nature that's my goal okay what are you doing okay so then they start doing things along those lines they start you know, hiking, they start planting trees, they start, you know, volunteering with Pet Finder or something. And they do all these things, and they're in the flow, they're living life. And then occasionally this thought pops in their head like, oh, you're ugly. But then they say to themselves, okay, fine, I'm ugly. Who cares? I'm only here on the planet for a little bit of time, and I'm doing good work with trees and with animals. Okay, fine, I'm ugly. And everyone thinks I'm ugly. Who cares? There, There's something powerful about having a meaning in life and about having a purpose that provides a, a barrier, a sort of protective wall against these intrusive thoughts. Now, if you have no meaning in, in your life and these intrusive thoughts come in, then there's nothing to counterbalance it. There's, there's no energy in your soul that is carrying you from one moment to the next. And so all you're doing is just sitting there going like, yeah, I'm a piece of shit. Because you don't have a you don't you don't even know why you're here. You've only been reacting. You've only been like trying to please for probably a lot of good reasons. Because you had a, a lot of scary people in your life who were making you feel that way. And I talk with a lot of people about this. It's hard work. the 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 gist of it is every moment you can think of, ten, twenty, thirty times a day. Ask yourself, what do I want right now? What do I want to do right now? What do, I, what do I want to eat right now? Who do I want to talk to? Where do I want to go? You ask those questions. Now, at first, you'll be like, this is kind of a funny exercise. Why am I asking myself these questions? And then later on, you'll be like, well, I don't really have any answers. I don't know. I, I, there are too many other things I have to worry about. I have to worry about what my family wants, you know, in terms of like just what am I going to eat for dinner tonight? Well, it's it doesn't really matter because I'm pretty easygoing. What my my kids are much more picky. I got to think about what they want. Well, fine. There's a reality to the world you got to think about, but at the same time, like unless you start asking yourself these questions, you'll never know the answer to them. And you have to ask yourself these questions thousands of times before an answer emerges from deep down inside of you. There there are answers deep down there, but 
there's no way to know what they are. And you got to ask many, many times. So without knowing why you're here, you know, those intrusive thoughts have, have nothing that is going to push back on them. Okay. So I actually asked him, the listener in Hungary to provide more information. Cause you know, he's just like, I suffer from this and it's really bad and I don't know what to do. And I said, well, you know, tell me, where did this all come from? Like, what was your childhood like? A lot of people who have body dysmorphic disorder were really shamed a lot as a kid. And so you might have to do a lot of work on that as well. So he wrote, I never found my place in my family. I started being depressed at a really young age. I didn't shower. I didn't eat. I was very skinny. And people always made fun of me because of my looks. They called me a skeleton or a zombie. My father was away working much of the time. My mother wasn't bad, but she didn't pay much attention to me either. I only had my brother, and he was, he was really abusive to me. He was really good at putting me down. At other times, we had fun together. And at the age of eight, he became very distant without any explanation. With my other siblings, I was the geek, and they were the cool guys. I was too lame for them. When I go to parties now, I keep telling myself, don't look in the mirror because it will make me feel bad, but I can't help but look in the mirror. I just feel so ugly, like I've never seen anything like it before. Funnily enough, when I ask people how I look, they always give me about an 8 or an 8.5, but I never believe them. I, I'm not trying to be overly dramatic. I'm just trying to explain how it feels. Maybe there are others out there who feel the same way end of email. Yeah, you're not being overly dramatic at all. You're you're being probably not as dramatic as you deserve to be. It's awful. Sounds awful. And I'm so so sorry that you're suffering. It's it just it hurts me to think about how much you're suffering. I mean, that's one thing about being a therapist that you eventually really realize is just how much everyone is hurting on the inside. And how little of that is being acknowledged. As a therapist and as a supervisor and teacher, I'm here to tell you that when I'm talking to people as, as their professor, as their supervisor, as their advisor, as their therapist, it doesn't take much to make people cry. Because so many people have tears that are waiting to come out and no one pays attention to it, including themselves. So to you... From hungry listener, I feel you. I, I, it sounds, it sounds like a lot of suffering, and it's not your fault. It, it happens. It's happening to you. You wish it wasn't happening. It's unfair. It's happening to you, and it probably has to do with the way you're raised. I mean, look at the way you're raised. You say your dad was gone all the time, so that's abandonment. That makes kids feel worthless. It's like, well, you know, when you're young, you don't. You're not like, well, money's tight. Dad's got to travel. No. When you're young, you're like, why isn't dad here with me? And then when he is home, he probably doesn't have a lot of time to spend with each of the kids. So it's like there's neglect there as well. And then you're, you said your mom just wasn't very av- available to you. And then your older brother is abusive. And guess what? He put you down. So this is exactly what I was talking about earlier. He made you feel ashamed and you had nowhere else to go. And so your brain 
internalize this working model of just like, I am a worthless person. I am, I'm not good enough in general. And then eventually through culture, you learned, well, I can beat myself up for the way I look because that's, that's what we do in the society. And so that's where my shame is going to go. But if it wasn't that, it would have been something else. So the thing I'll tell you is that you cannot fix this by yourself. I want to emphasize this. And this goes to all of you out there. A lot of you are suffering. And a lot of you ask me questions about stuff like this. And the thing that I, I always go to is, well, what does your therapist say? And they'll be like, well, I don't have a therapist. And I'm like, you can't do this alone. Now, some of you can't afford therapy. Some of you don't have access to therapy. Some of you don't have access to good therapy. Some of you have been to therapy and it sucked. But that doesn't mean we stop one, two, this means we have to like start bugging our politicians to pay for this sort of stuff. It's not fair that there are people suffering from things that could be treated and they have no access to that kind of stuff. It's not that expensive compared to like an MRI scan, you know, at the hospital or something. It's nothing. So, so you can, you can recover from this. People recover from this all the time. And what I find a lot of people do when they're emailing me, it's like they're in isolation and they're looking for answers about how to, how to change themselves, how to basically self-help themselves. How do I convince myself that I don't have this you know, problem? How do I convince myself to stop focusing on how I look, for example? Well, there are some self-help things you can do for sure, and a podcast could help with that. But the fundamental level is that shame and rejection and abandonment you experienced growing up. And the best place to address that is in long-term relational therapy. So you need a lot of things and you deserve that too. It's not just a matter of me going, Oh, I hope you get this. It's this is your right as a human being on the planet. We all have the right to recover from the traumas and the abandonment and the shames that we've been through. We have that right. And we have that right to get access to services. And especially, I don't know, Hungary, I don't know what the deal is there. I'm guessing that it's not great from other emails I've received from Hungary. But in the United States, it can also be bad. But I know in the United States that if you spend enough time, if you're a squeaky wheel enough, you can get services. Now, some of you can't because you're, you're in a particular situation, but many of you can. And what many of you will say is like, well, I went to a therapist once. It didn't really work. Well, you know, imagine if you only ate one meal once and then just stopped eating because you hated it so much. There are a lot of different kinds of meals out there. You have kimchi, you have hamburgers, you have pizza, you have burritos, you have cheesecake. There's a lot of different kinds of things. Hmm, getting kind of hungry. And... You got to try a lot of it. You got to try the feast before you know what you like the best. You know, like when you go to the buffet and you're starving because you've been starving all day because you know you're going to eat 5,000 calories and you just grab everything from the buffet. You grab the rolls, you grab the mashed potatoes, you grab the shrimp, you grab the pasta, you grab the pizza, you grab the ice cream, you grab, you know, something you can't even recognize. You bring it to your, to your table and if you're in my family, you look around and, and everyone takes pictures <laughs> of the of the feast that's going to occur on 
individually for each person. But then you go back for seconds because you're at a buffet. You can't just go once. That's just stupid. You're not getting your money's worth. And so you pick and choose at that point. You're like, well, you know, the pasta was okay, but it wasn't as good as the shrimp. So this time it's all shrimp, baby. Well, that's what therapy is like. You try out five therapists. Maybe you go for five to ten sessions with each one, but then you realize, ooh, this is the therapist that I really like. This is the one that really helps me. Then you go back. It, it's hard. It's a pain in the ass. I get it. But man, is it worth it. And you deserve it. It's your right as a human being to get that kind of help. So do it. There are so many therapists. Some of you, half of you are therapists out there. So if only the other half that could connect with you, know, you guys, uh, maybe there's something we can do. By the way, so I keep talking about Discord. I've been doing, we've been, I've been announcing it. Only a small amount of you, I think, are doing it. I think probably because, I mean, some of you are just like not interested in that kind of thing. But I think some of you are like, well, I don't know what Discord is. I, it's not really my thing. It, it's very easy. You sign up. Um, you don't have to pay anything. And you just start chatting. And we have this little room. Like, I don't use Discord for anything else other than Psychology in Seattle. Some people use it for all sorts of things. They subscribe to all sorts of different channels. And it's just this little private room that we can talk about things. And um, so I wonder if we could create a channel where you therapists out there could, like, post your information and other people could maybe in your area learn about your thing. Um, so maybe we should do that anyway. All right, let's go on to another email. What do you say? Okay, this next email is from patron Laura. <clears throat> I think Laura might have emailed me a long time ago. Some of these emails might be from years ago, by the way. So um, here we go. So this is about internal family systems or IFS. If you want to learn more about internal family systems, listen to my at least one episode that I've done. I, I would. It's been a while back, so you'd have to go to our website and go to the theories page, and there you will f- probably and all likely find the IFS or the family page, probably a theories page, or the therapies page. Either the family, the theories, or the therapies page, there you will find the IFS episode. Okay, so patron Laura was um, watching these videos on the founder of IFS, Richard Schwartz. So IFS, Internal Family Systems, is a relatively new theory, and the founder, the creator, the theoretician is still around and still teaching and still lecturing. There's a video of his online, and so Laura was watching this. So in a nutshell, you know, if you don't want to listen to the full episode on it, Richard Schwartz uh, created this form of therapy called IFS, Internal Family Systems, which claims to actually apply systems theory to individual people in terms of their psyche. So instead of looking at like you have a family where the dad is the authoritarian and the mom is the enabler and the child is the clown and the older child is the rebel, internal family systems say, well, we have all these roles in our minds. So in your mind, you have a self and you have a critic and you have an exile and you have an enforcer and you have a manager and you have a police officer and you have a clown and... And all these different parts of the self create a system called an internal family system. Now, 
what I'll say and what I've actually found some um, some agreement on when I talk to other people is it's called internal family systems and it's claimed to be a systemic theory, but it is not systemic. It is an intrapsychic theory that is fine. It's it's it works for people. It it um, is helpful to a lot of therapists and clients, but it's not a systemic theory at all. Like in the least, uh, I mean, one could claim that the parts of the self kind of work in system to each other, but um, but not really. So it's a bit of a switcheroo that it's called internal family systems, and it's promoted as a systemic theory in the family therapy world but it really has nothing to do with systemic theory if you really understand it. So um, Richard Schwartz is talking in this video, and patron Laura writes to me, he says that people with dissociative identity disorder aren't fundamentally different from anyone else, and that their parts have simply been blown apart by trauma, whereas the average person's parts are in greater harmony and thus not as noticeable. End of that part of the email. Yeah, um, Sure, it's a model. There are a lot of different ways to describe the self and its parts. But getting at the analogy between, um, you know, dissociative identity disorder and different and the different parts that IFS. So IFS, in a nutshell, there are very frequent parts of the self. Like almost everyone has, uh, I don't remember the exact, maybe it's the enforcer is what they call it. Everyone has like a defensive part of the self that kicks in when, the self feels like we need it to be there. <clears throat> like your spouse accuses you of being really distant and you feel like you haven't really been distant. Well, if you feel threatened, then the enforcer will step forward and be like, hey, I'm not distant, you're the distant one. And then later on, you might have a different self that emerges, which is more understanding, like, oh, I'm really sorry that I... So there's these different selves that are called upon and are necessary, and they're good parts of the self, but when we really learn why these different parts of the self emerge under different situations, then we can have greater control over our self and our lives and our relationships. Um, so... With dissociative identity disorder, if you want to learn more about that, then listen to our various different episodes on that. I might go to the psychopathology page on the website to listen to the episodes on dissociative identity disorder. Um, so Richard Schwartz is making this analogy that, well, dissociative identity disorder. So D Richard Schwartz talks about like everyone has a diff has a bunch of these selves on the inside that work together. And that dissociative identity disorder is just a exaggeration of those parts that are blown apart by trauma and don't work in, in harmony with each other the way that they do with other people. And so, um, uh, so in some ways he's saying we all have the, we all have a little bit of DID dissociative identity disorder in us, which is multiple personality disorder. Um, and that, Dissociative identity disorder is just an exaggeration of something that everyone does. Anyway, so, um, you know, uh, and patron Laura has a problem with that. She's like, well, that doesn't seem right. Well, to me, it's fine. It, it's a metaphor. It's a way that they're approaching it. And the analogy is fine if, if, if IFS therapists actually use it that way, as long as they understand that, um, you know, this notion is just a model, it's just a way of looking at it. And that just applying IFS, well, actually, what I'll say is that 
if someone really knew dissociative identity disorder really well, and they used an IFS model with their client, and it, you know, it, it meshed well, I could see it, mad, I could see it actually helping. So I, I could see IFS being used effectively with someone with DID. But if someone didn't understand dissociative identity disorder, there's no therapy that's going to work. You really have to understand that disorder. It's very particular. It's very odd. And uh, it's treatable, as a lot of people sometimes don't know, but you can actually help people. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. There was this notion in the old days that you had to integrate all the parts, but more recently we've realized that that's not always possible and it's not always necessary. There are a lot of people with, with dissociative identity disorder who just accept that they have these different alters and they just refer to themselves as we. They actually don't identify as an I or me. It's just, it's a we and us. And uh, because that's really what it feels like to them. It's like, well, there's another, there's an, there's other selves inside of me that emerge under different circumstances. And I, I can't really, you know, when I say me, I mean, I mean this altar, but I, I'm not referring to my other altars. Anyway, uh, Laura goes on to say, it seems like Dr. Swartz is really asserting that we are composed of these multiple parts that quite literally have a mind of their own. Instead of just saying that this is a helpful metaphor to help us understand and work out our complicated human condition, but is not meant to be taken literally as some kind of metaphysical reality. Yeah, um, I find this too, that when Swartz talks about his model, he seems to be talking about it in this way that um, it's reality. And I find this to be actually really common to a lot of theoreticians. Um, and also therapists, people who are super into internal family systems, like they're, they're a devotee. They will talk about IFS. Like it's the only theory on the planet. It's the best. It's, you know, has the most evidence. They see it everywhere and everything else is shit. (laughs) And it's not really a model to them anymore. It's reality. And it annoys me because I'm like, you realize it's your reality. It's not the reality. It's fine that you love this theory. I'm, I'm happy for you. But it's not the reality. And that can be annoying. And I think, Laura, you're picking up on Swartz's attitude there. It's one of the reasons why I could never probably ever be a theoretician because I would have to truly fall in love with my idea and discount all other ideas from other people. It just doesn't, it's, it's a very common um, path for a lot of theoreticians, not all, but you know, it's just one of those things like when certain people fall in love with their research topic and they start thinking like their research area explains all the world's issues. And it's like, you can just sort of tell by the way they're talking anyway. Um, solution focused people can be this way sometimes TFCBT people, DBT people. There's just certain uh, pockets of theory in my field, our field, that um, produces some percentage, a small percentage of people who, when you talk with them, they're talking like this is the reality, this is the only theory, this is the only therapy worth considering. And yeah, Swartz is talking that way. Laura goes on to say, I notice that he claims that this is <clears throat> I notice that he claims this is radically different from typical psychotherapy, but in my experience, psychodynamic and various other theories also teach to go with resistance instead of fighting it. So I'm not sure 
if it's different as he claims. Yeah. So Swartz in his videos will talk about how like, you know, this is not necessarily what he's saying, but this is the vibe he's saying is like, in IFS, we go with the resistance, whereas everyone else tries to end resistance. But IFS, we try to go with resistance. And you'll see that a lot. You'll see a lot of theoreticians. The bottom line is these theoreticians are trying to make money. They're trying to sell their books. They're trying to sell their model. They're trying to sell their classes. They're trying to seem <clears throat> more important. And the way that you do that is by having a lot of um, straw man, which is you you build up this fake opposing other, and then you strike it down because it's it's so weak. So you you say all other psychotherapies have a they try to end resistance, and then but I come along and I, I go with resistance. Yeah, it's it's extremely annoying when I hear people talk this way. Um, you know, it, these these people are inherently charismatic. In order to get a theory going among the thousands of other theories, you have to be very charismatic. You have to be a good writer. You have to be a good speaker. You have to be pretty energetic as a person. You have to really pursue a lot of public speaking and videos and books. You, you got to be really, you got to really go for it. And you have to be kind of full of yourself on some level. I'm sure Freud was full of himself. I'm sure Jung was full of himself. And now there's a balance between being full of yourself and being harmful, right? I mean, I'm a little bit full of myself. So that gives you the energy or the self-esteem or the compulsion to, you know, talk at other people. But so so there's that. So the, the sort of people who develop these theories already, in my estimation, have a certain kind of personality. And sometimes that can be quite large, right? Especially if you're Richard Swartz and you're IFS and you have a, a – you know, a certain number of people who are totally in love with your theory and say that your theory is the best thing that ever happened. And so they're just, and it, it also is, it's not, you're not going to sell as many books or classes if you're like, yeah, so my model works for some people, but for a lot of people it doesn't. And it's just a model. It's just a way, it's just a thing I thought up. It's a, it's a way of seeing the world that I found to be helpful with some of my clients, not all of them, but you know, it, it sort of helps as long as I'm integrating all these other ideas from all the other schools of psychotherapy, I find that I'm a really good therapist. So you're not going to sell a lot of classes, what you are, it, but if you market yourself to a lot of novice and, you know, inexperienced therapists who are grasping at answers to the problem of, of their self-esteem and they don't know what they're doing in therapy as a clinician, and you come along and you say, I have the answers. I know exactly what's happening. The evidence is clear. The research is in. I am smart. I am a genius. Listen to these other devotees talk about how wonderful this model is. And, you know, you're, you're going to get a lot more classes and you're going to fill a lot more seats. You're going to sell a lot more books. And it just creates this, you know, ever, um, you know, this vicious cycle. So, uh, yeah, you're definitely bumping into that, and um, that's great. In, in my experience regarding models, all the models are great. All human experience is completely accurately described by all the theories. No one theory accurately or, you know, uh, completely describes the human experience. That's what's so great about our field is we have so many different ways of looking at the human experience, all of which are valid. So... Uh, uh, you know, and and it, it's and is evidenced by 
there are certain concepts that you will see uh, spanning across many different theories. They're just worded differently. For example, in psychodynamic theory, you have projective identification. And if you want to learn more about that, listen to other episodes um, on that. But so you have projective identification, but in attachment theory, which is a completely different theory, you have working models. And in cognitive therapy, you have schema or beliefs, core beliefs. In behavioral theory, you have habits. In systems theory, you have structural routines. In Nage, contextual theory, you have invisible loyalties, and, and so on. All these completely different theories are describing the same thing with different languages, within a different theoretical structure, and with a slightly different spin on the idea. You know, they're not exactly the same, but they really are very, you know, very similar to each other. Anyway, Laura goes on to say, instead of coming from a neuroscientific view and saying the client's limbic system is hyperactive and not well integrated with the cortical functions of the brain due to past trauma, thus making it difficult for the client to self-soothe and regulate emotions, the IFS therapist might say, the client's exile has been triggered and is demanding attention, and now the firefighter is trying to respond to the emergency, and the manager is freaking out because she's no longer in control. Yeah, absolutely. So there's just two different ways, you know, Lori, very well put, by the way. There's just two different ways of describing the same thing. Each is valid. Neither is wrong. They're just different ways of looking at it. And, and to me, I like looking at it from all the different directions. I, I like the brain science direction. I definitely use that a lot. And I also, well, I don't use IFS, but I, I use things that are similar to IFS. All right, let's move on here. Okay, this next question is about a parent with anxiety. It's an interesting question. The email writes, would you consider doing an e would you consider doing an episode on being a parent with anxiety specifically focused on how to help children avoid internalizing their parents' anxious behavior? My wife and I both struggle with different forms of anxiety, OCD and panic, and we want to do what we can to prevent our daughter from developing anxiety for herself. I just I suspect to some degree it's a it's a nature and nurture issue, so despite our best efforts, she may have anxiety anyway. But if there are things we can do to prevent or help it, we'd love to know. Yeah, great question. One I don't often get. Um, yeah, absolutely. Some of it is nature. Anxiety does tend to run in families, even among children who weren't raised by their biological parents. We're all, you know, to at least some degree, doomed to our biology. Um, anxiety runs in my family, and I'm doomed to that as well. Uh, so there's that. I mean, on the on the bright side, it's like depression doesn't really run in my family. So maybe, you know, I, I won in that way. Um, but anyway, so what can you do? Well, the first thing you can do is recover from anxiety yourself. And you do that through a really long, you know, ongoing process of awareness, which can take a long time. It's like, okay, how do I know what I feel when I feel it? What are my triggers? Um, what are the different thoughts that run through my mind when I notice that I'm being scared. And then the next thing is regulation. How do you regulate those emotions? Do you uh, talk about it? Do you think about it? Do you hug someone? Do you, um, you know, take, go for a walk? 
Do you go for a hike? Do you breathe? Do you do mindfulness? You know, all those things that you do for yourself. So you're probably always going to have a little bit of anxiety. Like me, for example, I'm a therapist. I do therapy on myself with anxiety all the time. It, it's, 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 anxiety is one of those things you can absolutely self-treat. And I still have anxiety. It's just, it's part of my bones. But I keep it at a pretty low um, hum throughout my life because I have been working on it since I entered this field 25 years ago. So so you, you, it takes a long time. There's a lot of things that you got to do. And you just you just do that. You, you, you do that work. And also to have no shame around it. I'm guessing that you don't have a lot of shame about it because you're like accepting it and writing into a podcast about it. So, so not only awareness and regulation, but also, you know, how you view it is a big part that your child will pick up on. So then once you got all that in order, or maybe you already do, then you model that for your child. You're about to, you know, you're, you're driving on a scary road. And you say to yourself, whoa, this road kind of makes me scary, makes me scared. But I know that what helps me is to notice my fear and to think about it and talk about it and also take a couple deep breaths and say everything's okay. So you're externalizing, you're showing your child, one, that fear is nothing to be ashamed of, that talking about it is helpful, and that there are methods of reducing your fear. This is a wonderful lesson that you can teach your children, regardless of whether or not you have anxiety or not. We, we tend to, um, our kids tend to do what we do. So, th- so think about, you know, everyone out there, whether you're a parent or not, well, you know, particularly parents. But so imagine, um, think about the way you deal with your anxiety. You know, what does it look like from the outside? Do you get grumpy? Do you get quiet? Do you talk about it? Do you get active? Do you get kind of manic? Do you clean the house? You know, what do you do when you're anxious? Well, your children are watching that and they know, they know when you're anxious, believe me. And they see what you do and they will do that. They'll, they'll gravitate towards the same category of behavior. So if you show that when you're anxious, you like to talk about it and reassure yourself and take care of yourself and that you're not ashamed, then your child will too. It's magical. Some of you mature, differentiated people out there have kids like this now, where you will see your four-year-old child say, oh, I'm really nervous about going to school today, so I'm going to do my deep breathing. Like, it sounds ridiculous for a four-year-old to say that, but it's only ridiculous because adults don't do that, and so therefore kids don't do that. Let me give an, an analogy. All of us can imagine a four-year-old child throwing a temper tantrum, right? We can all imagine them getting angry and, you know, um, saying, no, 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 this, that's not fair, that's not fair, that's not fair, I want, I want, I want. Well, guess where they get at least part of that from? They get it from watching us or other people. So they do what they see, and if they see you with outward emotional regulation and non-shaming and awareness, then they'll follow, because what do they know? They don't know that you're weird. <laughs> um, the other thing, the last thing is, is to help your child with it. So you, you are attuned to your child, and you notice when your child is anxious 
or you suspect your child's anxious, you know, you're about to go to the playground and there's a lot of kids there and your four-year-old doesn't really know any other, other kids. Well, you imagine that you bet your child is anxious. Well, since you've been doing the groundwork up until that point, that anxiety is nothing to be ashamed of and that um, it's normal to be anxious, then you can turn to your child and say, oh, are you a little afraid right now of all those kids? Does it, does it give you a, you know, a little bit of nervousness? And again, because you've managed to non-shame and make it very normal, your kid says, yes, I'm, I'm a little nervous right now, but I'll be okay. And, or the kid says, I don't, yeah, I'm a little nervous. You know, maybe we should go home. And then you say, okay, we can go home, but let's just sit here for a second before we go to the, the playground and let's, let's do our ways of helping us with our anxiety. Let's do our, let's close our eyes and relax our body, and take our deep breaths, and tell ourselves that everything's going to be okay. And maybe also think about what's the worst thing that could happen? You know, you know, little Jenny, what do you think the worst thing that could happen? Well, maybe I'll, I'll fall down and get hurt. Okay, so that could happen. Is that so bad? No, I'll, I'll get better. Okay, so although that's something to kind of worry about, it's not necessarily reason to avoid the playground altogether, right? Yeah, you're right. Okay, then you go to the the playground. Um, we don't do this with kids enough. You know, some of you parents do th- do this, and I, I know you do, and I think that's fantastic. But a lot of us parents, we were not raised that way as children, and we didn't, we don't know any better. So we we just do the best we can, and sometimes all we know what to do is to, is to either just take the kid home and like throw your hands up. Oh, I guess our, my kid doesn't like the playground. You go home or you just like say, you know, Hey, you know, you're a big girl. Now you can handle it. You sort of yell at your kid. And this is, you know, not the best approach usually. So those are the things that you can do to help your child not be a anxious wreck like you. All right, this next email is from an anonymous patron. They write, A friend of mine is a stepmother and has a 16-year-old stepdaughter. She and her husband are struggling with dealing with the daughter. The daughter, the stepdaughter, loses things like keys. She's not sure where she parked her car at the mall. She's often forgetful, and this results in chaos for her entire family. This will, they, the parents, the stepmom and the dad, will repeatedly tell her to do things. Put your keys on the key rack right at the front door. Clean the bathroom, etc. For example, her bathroom is very, very dirty. She throws sanitary pads in the garbage without wrapping them, etc. The question my friend and I had is, how many times do you ask someone to do something or just let it go? How would the parents get a behavioral change from a 16-year-old, 16-year-old child? Uh, end of email. Okay, well, there's a lot to say here. Number one is, look, it's hard. Parenting a strong-willed, as they say, teenager is hard. Getting getting a strong-willed teenager to comply with rules that they don't want to comply with is virtually impossible. As a family therapist for many years, I don't do family therapy anymore, but as a family therapist for many years, I'm here to tell you, <laughs> As a family therapist for many years, the majority of my clients were families with teens who were defying rules. They were running away from home. 
They were throwing sanitary napkins in the garbage without wrapping them. They were smoking pot in the house. They were dropping out of school. They were in gangs. They were staying out too late. They were having sex with the neighbor or whatever. And, you know, we have this notion in our society that good parents know how to control their teenagers. I'm here to tell you that is completely a myth. Good parents have nothing to do. You know, the, the reason why some kids follow their parents' rules, which, by the way, none of them follow all the rules, by the way. It's just a matter of degree. It's just a matter of how much they let you know they're breaking the rules. Um, but the teenagers who look like they're following the rules of their parents or are following most of the rules, they're not doing so because the parents are good at discipline. It's because the parents laid the groundwork early in life for the attachment to be strong. So the kid actually wants to follow the parents' rules because the kid actually loves the parents and wants the parents to be proud of them and wants the parents to be happy. Whereas when there's a lack of attachment and a um, you know difficulty in the family, the, the child is like, well, why the fuck would I be inconvenienced by these rules that I don't really care about being told to me by people that never really cared for me? Or, or these people never really you know provided me with the sort of help that I needed when I was younger. I, I gave up on you guys long, long ago. So the key is when you're looking at defiant kids is to look at the security of the relationship. It's very important to know that because what I see a lot, what I, what I did with a lot of parents and it was, man, it was hard convincing parents of this. And, and I would say half of them, I never convinced them of it, but what they would do is they would, you know, they'd say, okay, my kid isn't cleaning the bathroom. So I gave them a dis, I disciplined them. They're grounded. Well, when they were grounded, they snuck out of the house at night. So now they're granted for two weeks and I took away their, you know, their computer or their phone or something. Okay. The week, week later, now they're smoking pot in, in the house and they're sneaking friends in through the window. So now I've locked their window and I've taken the door off of, of their bedroom. Okay. Now the kid just ran away and won't come home. So you, you understand the escalation there, right? It, and each step of the way, I'm like, okay, one, your rules are rational. There's a good purpose and impulse that is motivating you to double down on those discipline rules. From a very early age of your child, you knew that you needed to discipline your child. You need to control them. You know, you can't just let kids run out into the street. You can't just let your six-year-old wander around the neighborhood. You can't let your eight-year-old not go to school when they don't want to. You can't let your four-year-old not take a nap when they're supposed to. You can't let your 12 year old not eat dinner when they're supposed to. There's, you know, there's certain things you got to put your foot down on. And I get that. And I'm, and I'm glad you have that impulse. But in, with this 15 year old, it's, it's the wrong impulse to have. Uh, and the parents would be like, well, so I'm just supposed to let my kid walk all over me. I'm supposed to, you know, I'm supposed to reward bad behavior. And I'm like, in a sense, yes, because it's not a matter of, finding the best approach to this. It's a matter of finding the least bad approach. There's no, when a child, when a 15 year old child decides to break the rule, a 16 year old child decides to defy their parents, there's no easy answer to that. There's only answers that have less bother to them than others. So, um, 
So part of the best answer to me involves actually kind of rewarding bad behavior at times because you have to start with the fundamentals, which is the relationship between the parent and the kid. <clears throat> so, you know, so what a lot of parents will do is, is they'll just be so frustrated with their kid and so angry that they'll be kind of hostile with the kid. And then the kid will be hostile back. And then, you know, let that happen for a couple of years. And the parents and the kid live together, but they hate each other. And then the kid by then has no reason to follow the rules. And so I, you know, I, I encourage people to start from the beginning. It's like, okay, let's put aside all the rules. You know, there's nothing wrong with the rules. You can keep them or not keep them. It doesn't matter. How's your bond? You know, how, how is your closeness right now? Do you enjoy each other? And the parents would be like, well, you know, Jenny doesn't want to talk with me. I try to involve Jenny in my, you know, I, I said, let's go to the movies. Jenny said, no, um, whenever Jenny's on the phone, she hides from me. Uh, Jenny completely avoids me. And so, uh, and I would never tell the parents this, but sometimes in my mind, I'm like, okay, this might be a kind of too far gone because the amount of years of disdain that these two people have had for each other for a number of years, it might not actually recover within the time that this child is still a minor. So sometimes it's just a matter of, uh, reducing the the problems from this point forward. But anyway, so, so anyway, getting a strong-willed child to comply, believe me, is hard. It's, it's not easy, even when there are times when you actually do want to clamp down. Like there, I would, I would counsel families where the kid would be running away from home and, you know, getting into bad, bad, bad news bears kinds of things. And, the parents would be like pretty good and they might even have a good bond with the kid and pretty nice. And we'd have to come down hard on the kid and, you know, discipline. And the, um, the, some kids, they just, anyway, it's just really hard. So number two is from your email, who patron, it sounds like you and your friend are approaching this kind of in a cold manner. I don't know. I don't know for sure. I can't, I have, I'm just reading between the lines, but your email sounds kind of cold and it kind of sounds maybe like the stepmom might be a little cold too. You know, you're focusing on things that I, I, again, I've talked with lots of parents and when I see parents, so let's just look empirically at the complaints that your friend has about her stepdaughter. She loses keys. She's 16, by the way, she loses keys and she forgets where he parks she forgets where she parks her car at the mall and she has a dirty bathroom and she puts sanitary pads in the garbage without wrapping them okay if that's all you're dealing with with your 16 year old i have to say you have it good <laughs> the the amount of fucking up that a 16 year old can do and will do uh, is astronomical compared to those complaints. I just have to say, you know, a 16 year old losing keys, uh, par for the course, a 16 year old not being clean in their bathroom. I mean, my God, uh, most people have disgusting bathrooms until they're 25 years old in my experience, men and women, by the way. So, or 35 for that matter. So the fact that she has a dirty bathroom, the fact that she loses her keys and sometimes forgets where she parks the car. The other thing is, is she could be ADHD. There's, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's some signs there that she actually suffers from some kind of neurological disorder, but you know, I'm not going to assume that. Let's just say she's 
she doesn't have ADHD and she's just, you know, forgetful or just doesn't care. Um, you know, that's, that's normal. She's 16. People tend to look at 16 year olds like they're little adults. They are not little adults. You know, I, I think that adulthood is a transition between 18 and 31. It takes a long time to mature. And 16, I see 16 year olds as 10 year olds who can drive. Your 10 year olds who, you know, who can drive and your, your emotional, 16-year-old emotional lives are, um, they're not advanced. Let's just put it that way. They're organizational skills, not advanced. They might look like it. They might talk like it. Um, some might actually have those, those skills, but on average, they don't. So, so when you talk about these things and then the tone you're talking about it, you know, so your question at the end of all this is like, how many times do you have to ask someone to do something or just let it go? You know, um, if those are your only choices, like, okay, I either let it go or I ask more times, that sounds like a cold approach. Uh, the, the question and the tone should be, um, so it sounds, so I'm seeing signs that the stepdaughter, the stepmother and the stepdaughter have never developed a bond, that they never were given the opportunity to develop a close relationship the way that a stepmom and a stepchild needs to have. Believe me, I understand, you know, step parenting is rough. I've worked with families, step, you know, lots of step families where it's tough, man. Like it's a very weird uh, road to maneuver, especially when you have like the, the biological mother hates the stepmom and the kids want to be loyal to the bio mom. There's a lot of weird shit that can happen. The divorce could have been ugly. The stepmom could have been the, the mistress for a while, you know? So there's a lot of really interesting things that can happen. And I get it. It's tough. And that's why you need a family therapist for all this, which I guess is my main recommendation. But, um, so I, I, again, I'm reading between the lines of an email that was written by a friend of a stepmom. So, you know, take that, take everything I'm going to say with a grain of salt, but it's kind if I were you, I would go to my friend, the stepmom, and I would say, so I was listening to his podcast and what he thinks you should do is try to work on a bond with your stepdaughter. And then through that bond, uh, two things will happen. One, the child will be more likely to follow your rules just because that's why kids follow rules. It's because of bond, not because of discipline. And two, your child, when you see those annoying things from that child, you will feel different about them. Let me, let me give you an example. So let's say that, um, you know, your, your, your brother has a friend that you don't know. And your brother comes to you and says, my friend needs a place to stay. Can he stay at your place? It's an emergency. You know, he'll be homeless if he doesn't stay at your place. And you're just like, okay, fine. So this random guy comes over, let's just call him, you know, I don't know, Slick. So Slick comes over to the house and he, he walks in and he, you know, he's all disheveled. And he says, oh my God, th- thanks for putting me up. And you're like, okay, well, you can sleep on the couch and hopefully you can get back on your feet soon because, you know, I can't have you living here that long. And he's like, yeah, I totally get it. Totally get it. Okay. So you go to bed and you wake up in the morning and you go to the bathroom and you see hair in 
the, uh, you know, the shower. Your soap is in the wrong spot. Um, the toilet seat isn't down or whatever. Just, just all the little things that people do. In all likelihood, you're going to be like that motherfucker. He comes in my house and he gets my shower all hairy and he puts my thing over here and he doesn't put the seat down. Motherfucker. Now, let's say that it is your beloved niece who comes to your house and you love her and she visits for the first time. She stays on your couch and you're like, anytime. And then you wake up in the morning and you go into the shower and you see a little bit of hair in the bathtub and you see that the toilet seat isn't down or whatever. Well, first off, you're going to go, why is my niece putting up the toilet seat? But the other thing is you're, you're going to see it differently. You're going to forgive it. You're going to be like, oh, well, whatever, you know, um, not my cup of tea, but you know, I guess she has a different thing or she's young. Who cares? When you have a bond with someone, you, you see it differently. So if you, just because she's your stepdaughter doesn't mean you have a bond with her. And I think, I think that's one of the things that a lot of families do is they, you know, there's a divorce and the father remarries and there's just this expectation like, oh, things will work out. She's now your step, she's now your stepmom. And, you know, we're a family now without any tending to the process. It'd be like, an, it's like an arranged marriage, essentially. And the, the bond between, now, I'm not saying that stepchildren need to have as strong of a bond with a step-parent as they would with a bio-parent, although they can and, and sometimes do. I'm just saying that some level of bonding and some level of routine making, you know, to the child, they're like, okay, what's the deal here? Is this my mom-mom or is this like a stepmom? Is this like a friend? Like, what is this? Um, does this person love me? Is this person going to be there for me? Um, all those things need to be uh, almost ceremonialized in a lot of ways, or at the very least facilitated through contact. And if without that, yeah, you're going to see things like sanitary napkins in the, in the garbage can without it being wrapped, and it's going to drive you crazy. But if you have a bond with that person, it'll just be a minor annoyance. So, again, I'm reading between the lines. Who knows what I'm saying, if it makes any sense. But let's go on to another email. Okay, this next email is kind of interesting. They write, Today I'm writing about how I can be helpful and supportive of my friend. She has been suffering from PTSD and panic for years and years. But the thing is, she is one of those people who can be extremely draining on me. I feel like maybe I've been enabling by providing her with a safe haven and listening to her complain all the time. I'm finally starting to add some tough love. I say this because she doesn't work on herself. She complains a lot and feels like she she complains a lot and feels like shit all the time. I feel like she has been in therapy for years and isn't making any progress. She said she says she breaks down for most of her sessions sessions so she can't get a lot accomplished. But she feels the session is helpful because it's a safe place to cry. Is there a type of therapy out there where she can make real progress and not just talk and cry about her past trauma and current woes the whole session? So the first thing I'll say to you is that you're a good friend. You are there for her. 
you care about her. She probably really values you and taught, you know, the relationship you have. And so that's great. Um, the second thing I'll say is that, yeah, listening to this sort of stuff can be, can be tough. It takes professionals sometimes to be able to do this. There are, when, when someone's really, you know, struggling with ongoing depression or ongoing PTSD or something like this, if you're a friend, it, it can be, it can be something of a toll on you to, to be there for them. Now it's not only one way directional, you know, so that's actually part of my suggestion here is like, if every time you talk with her, it's mainly her complaining about how her life is shit and you're just trying to be supportive. If that's all your relationship is, it's normal for you to have somewhat of a complaint about that. So I recommend you shift the relationship uh, to be more about you at times. You know, what about your troubles or what about things you want to talk about, like movies or whatever? So I don't know. Maybe that's a factor. Maybe that's not. But yeah, it's normal to uh, have it be kind of tough because it's it we naturally over time with people, we kind of fuse with them a little bit. And so their troubles kind of become ours. And we feel those problems and it drains us too. It, yeah, it's tough. Um, this is why therapists need their own therapy and they need their own supervision. They need their own consultation because therapists also feel that way at the end of the day sometimes. Number three, you ask, you know, are there therapies that can make real progress, as you say? Yeah, some therapies tend to work and some therapies tend to not work. If she truly has PTSD, which sometimes people will say someone has PTSD when in reality they just have trauma-related issues, not, not exactly PTSD. If she truly has PTSD, then there are forms of therapy, most forms of therapy are not going to help her. She needs a very specific kind of therapy, namely one that involves careful exposure, imaginal exposure to the trauma so she can habituate to the experience, the memories, and uh, develop meaning and post-traumatic growth from that. It's a very complicated process, but it's really quite specific. And most therapists, frankly, don't even know what this is, let alone know how to do it. So certainly her therapist might be ineffective. But here's the thing. It's quite possible that her therapist is perfect for her. You know, for for many people who I suspect, given this, the profile that you laid out about your friend, I suspect that the trauma that your friend went through wasn't like a car crash. I suspect it was childhood trauma. And sometimes progress, real progress in therapy is crying about it every session and feeling like shit every session for 20 years. We have this notion in society that like, okay, I have trauma from my childhood. I go to therapy. There's this discrete progress from session to session. And after eight to 10 sessions, I'm done. I'm cured. Everything's fine. For some situations, that is true. I've actually treated PTSD in eight sessions before, but it was, it was a one trauma event. She had, um, been, she, she had suddenly seen, she had suddenly discovered that her husband was cheating on her. And that was so traumatic for her. You know, she had an actual PTSD reaction from that and afterwards developed PTSD symptoms. 
Um, but it only took about eight sessions, maybe even less, maybe like six or seven, to, to cure her of her PTSD. I, I administered a test at the beginning, administered a test at the end, and she had full-blown PTSD at the beginning, and she didn't have a single symptom at the end. Um, but I ran her through the relaxation, the emotional regulation, the consent, the exposure, the meaning-making, all that kind of stuff, and she was cured. Now, uh, for people who go through a you know, childhood trauma, it never works out that way. So think of it like this. When a child is going through abuse and neglect and mistreatment from age zero to 18, think about all the times that they deserved to cry on someone's shoulder and were never given that opportunity. Well, now times that by about like 10 well, now you have how many times they have to cry on someone's shoulder. When we go through something tough, we have to cry on someone's shoulder, right? It's good. Like someone dies and you want to cry on someone's shoulder. Well, in a healthy environment, we have those shoulders to cry on. We're not shamed about our feelings. We know our feelings. We value our feelings. And we, shame, we, and we, and we cry on that shoulder and the, the person with the shoulder rubs our back and says everything's going to be okay. And, and that helps. Well, when, when you're a child, there are many times when you need to cry on someone's shoulder. Usually it's your parents. But if your parents are the ones abusing you and mistreating you and neglecting you, then you can't go to them. So all of those tears and all those validation moments and all of those um, processing moments are put on the shelf. And when you go to therapy, that's when you start going to that shelf but it's so much more worse because they've become kind of solidified. They've sort of like, you know, glued themselves to the shelf. It takes a while to pull it down. And so there's a lot for some of these people. That's progress is years and years of crying. And from the outside, it's not going to, it's not going to look like anything's happening. You're going to be like, because the, the, the client might even say, I don't know if therapy is working. And the therapy, so here's the conundrum. The therapy actually might not be working. That's the conundrum. It might actually not be a good match for that particular situation. But it's also possible that therapy is working. It's just taking a long time. So it's, it's tough. It's one of the tragedies of childhood abuse is that there's so much ongoing suffering, so much uh, difficulty at, you know, attaching to the self so many difficulties in relationships and also so many difficulties in therapy. So it, if you want my advice based on what you're saying is be a good friend, be there for her. Don't do tough love by God's sakes. She's your friend. Don't use tough love on your friend. Um, you might actually be experiencing some countertransference around the way her parents felt. And she's, it, it, the friend might actually be inviting you into a projective ide- identification in which you pseudo abuse her. So re- reject those um, seductions to participate in the model that your friend has, which is one of abuse and one of rejection. So, you know, just be a good friend, which is a wonderful thing you've been doing so far and listen w- as much as you want, but don't listen any more than you don't want. When you're done listening, when you're just like, Oh my God, you know, 45 minutes of me listening to you and your troubles. It's just, I can't take anymore. Have that boundary. You deserve that boundary. 
And then you get to say, look, this is a friendship. I'm not your therapist. You know, you don't yell at her, but you, you know, just know inside that you deserve to have a friend too. So you can say, um, you know what, today, I, I, I'd really just rather not talk about anything heavy. I just want to have a fun day. I just want to go to the park and I want to talk about Tinder and I want to do this or that. Just, you know, you, and now if your friend is like, that's too much for me, then maybe it's not like, really a friendship friendship you know maybe it's one of those things where i mean friendship friendship meaning that your friend is in such a state it's hard for them to give to you as a friend would um you can still be friends but it's not the sort of friend you get from other kind of friendship mutual friendships that you get from other people um anyway so that's what i'll say to that And that's where I will wrap it up because I feel like I've been talking for a long time. So I am about, well, it looks like two thirds, maybe, maybe, maybe two fifths of the way through this. Um, And I will now uh, be uh, going on to another chapter at another time. (laughs) Sometimes the words just don't really come out of my face the way that they want to. So that does it for that episode of Psychology of Seattle in which I talked about those things. I'm cleaning out the closet. It's spring cleaning, people. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do.